Well, Happy New Year. Does anyone believe that God is with us? He is with us. Who rang in the new year, by the way, by watching the ball drop? Yeah, always anticlimactic. Um, who rang it in by watching college football? That was a little more exciting. Who rang it in with your eyes closed? <laughs> You're the ones with the most energy, and I get why. Well, happy new year. A new year always brings a sense of excitement, the sense of anticipation. I know in the past I've asked who makes New Year's resolutions and gotten, like, no hands, so I get it. We're not a resolution people. That's old school, I guess, old-fashioned. We don't do that anymore. But when we ring in a new year, it is customary that we look forward. And we say, okay, we've, we've kind of reminisced about the past and the previous year, but we just want to look forward. And New Year's Day is a time to do that. So it's kind of cool that we get to do this as a church family and gather with our faith family, look to God and say, okay, God, as we look forward to this new year, we have no idea what's going to happen. Well, I don't. Does anyone know what's going to happen this year? Yeah, we're not prophets and we don't play one's on, one on TV. We have no idea what's going to happen this year. And so it's important that as we look forward to a new year, we kind of can hope for and expect and pray for good things. But we also really need to anticipate bad things. Because here's what we know about this year. It's not going to go the way we expect. Did anyone notice that about the last few years maybe? It didn't go. I look with this weird laughter at our series in 2020 when we began the new year. Like 2020 vision. Oh, it was a great 2020 vision. Right? And we have no idea. And so today we just kind of settle our hearts and say, okay, God, with a year in front of us that is going to be filled with things that we don't anticipate, we don't expect, how can we prepare ourselves now to deal with the unexpected, to deal with the difficult? Last year we spent some time going through the first five chapters of the Gospel of John. And John is the account of one of Jesus' closest friends as he writes about the life of Jesus. Today we begin a new series looking at the next chapters in his account, chapters 6 through 11 of the Gospel of John. And we're going to learn something unique during this time, because during John 6 through 11, Jesus' close friend John records some of Jesus' greatest moments, kind of the greatest hits, the best of Jesus. But what happens after each of Jesus' greatest wonders and greatest hits is something highly unexpected. We actually see Jesus facing tremendous difficulty after every single great victory. And so there's kind of a truism in life. Great victories are often followed by great challenges. Can anyone else say amen to that? You've probably experienced this, right? And sometimes it's even the same day that you experience a great victory, you experience a, a new challenge, a fresh difficulty that you didn't see coming. And it's kind of been said as Jesus followers that we're either in a difficult situation or heading into a difficult situation. And so how do we prepare to do this thing called opposition? How do we prepare to face opposition and face it well in a new year? So if you would meet me in your copy of the scripture, John chapter 6. If you're using a chair Bible, it's 857. And uh, if you want a chair Bible to go home with you, it's our New Year's gift to you. Take it with you 
and it's a gift. If you're at our Front Street campus this morning, it's in a white bag nearby you in one of those chairs. Take that Bible out and use it, and it's our gift to you also. Uh, if you're at any of our other campuses, Bainbridge, Cincy, that gift is there for you to use today and also to take home. And if you're online, under your chair right now, wherever you're at, I don't know what's there. Maybe there's a Bible if you can find one. If you use a Bible app, uh, that will help you also. So, John chapter 6, and before we join uh, this account of Jesus' life, um, I'll introduce myself briefly to those who don't know me. I'm Justin. I serve as a teaching pastor here at Berean. And there's a $32,000 question that you're probably asking right now. Why in a new year are we doing a series on facing opposition? That seems a little bit odd for a new year. Why are we talking about this? I mean, after all, don't we live in America, the land of the free and the home of the brave? And wasn't our nation, if you've studied our history, wasn't our nation founded by who? Christians, mainly Christians who were seeking what type of freedom? Religious freedom. And so enshrined in our founding documents, you have the very first amendment. And that first amendment says that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Now, I've already heard some chuckles. Because you know this isn't the same nation that we still live in. There's a little bit of a rub here. Because we're getting close, our country is getting close to our 247th birthday. And as our nation has grown and matured and changed, so has our nation's view of Christianity. I'm going to make a statement here that may upset some of you, but I think it's, it's, it's fact. We are no longer living in a Christian nation. Now, you may not agree with this, but I guarantee you, you feel this. You and I, now, now some people would argue we've never been in a Christian nation. That's fine. But it was a Christian majority nation, founded with the Christian ideals of religious freedom for all. We are no longer living in a Christian majority nation. This is, I'm going to give you a little term, and we'll talk about this throughout the year in different contexts. America is a post-Christian nation. Okay? Now, if you're a student of history, you know that Europe is a post-Christian continent. America has now become a post-Christian nation. What does that mean? It means that true Christians are now a minority. So again, you may not agree with this, but I guarantee you, you feel this. In fact, if you were watching the ball drop last night, on a certain major channel, what did you see within moments of the ball drop? Two guys kissing, right? And, and it was just in your face. That is a very open thing now in a post-Christian nation. It's accepted, and it's not only accepted, it's celebrated. And if you don't celebrate it, watch out for opposition, okay? So we live in a post-Christian nation where Christians are now in a minority, true Christians. So just another anecdotal thought here. Who would have thought 
that we would be at a place in our nation, what would our founding fathers have thought when three years ago, for a couple months, it was illegal for us to gather in here on Sunday? It was illegal for a couple months. Now, some of you are like, uh, wasn't that during a global pandemic? And aren't there restrictions to freedoms, to all freedoms? Yeah. But those restrictions are becoming more commonplace in our post-Christian nation. So where Christian values and Christians used to be widely embraced in our country, there have been changes. In fact, there, there was a reader to teach kids to read in, in our nation's founding called the McGuffey Reader. And that McGuffey Reader was, was to teach kids to read for the purpose of them being able to read what? The Bible. This is, this is history. This is our nation. So Christian values and Christianity and the Bible, they were all widely embraced. And now it kind of shifted during many of your lifetimes to Christianity being tolerated. But we're not even here anymore, are we? We've gone from widely embraced to tolerated to despised. Christian values and Christianity is now often despised. Now, it's interesting. Our kids, many of them, are in here today. And so as we talk about this, we think about them. This is what makes us adults fearful because our kids are growing up in a nation that's different from our parents. And we're growing up in a nation that was different from our parents. And so there's this sense of fear as parents, as grandparents. Do you feel it? There's a sense of fear. What are they growing up with? Because here's the deal. Not only Christianity and Christian values are despised now, but the Bible, which used to be looked at as a sacred text, which kids would learn to read with the McGuffey reader so that they could read this book, it was widely respected. It then became viewed as outdated. Let me go back one. Sorry about that. Uh, can you go back one for me, Sam, if you don't mind? My clicker's got some demons in it. Um, it used to be that it was embraced. Then it became viewed as outdated and unscientific. And, and that's how many grew up in school with that perspective. Right? What they saw in Sunday school and what they learned in public school, it was like, okay, these Bible stories are, are fake. They're falsified. They're, they're, they're fantasy. And, and it was this idea. But now we have gotten to this. We have gotten to where scriptures looked at is intolerant, harmful, and hateful. Do you realize this? Around you, all over, are people who no longer respect this, who no longer just view this as an as a outdated, unscientific text. They literally view this as something that's harmful. That's why there's such a visceral reaction to the Bible in schools. That's why there's such a visceral reaction to the, to the Bible in Albany or in D.C. It's because the Bible isn't considered to be even a respected text or an outdated text. It's now considered to be a harmful and hateful text. So as a Bible church, what do you think we're preparing for? Increased opposition. We're going to face this. It's going to be in our lifetimes. I've long thought that I'm going to be alive to see jail time just for believing stuff that most of our founders believed. I expect to be in jail someday for my faith. I expect some of you will too. And we'll have a grand old time. Now, that's just the way. Now, I don't share this with you about our culture moving away from Christ so that you get afraid. I think you already are. I think most of us already are. What's that? 
he is still in control. He is still in control. Yes, he is. This catches us off guard because the shift is so quick. But God knew this was coming. So I don't share this with you to get you afraid. Here's what I want you to know. Christianity has always done better as a minority faith. Okay? Christianity has always done better as a minority faith. When Christians are majority, Christians tend to get complacent and they compromise. Let me make it personal. When we're a majority, when we have political power and influence and sway, we tend to get complacent with our faith and compromise. Do you know that's not going to be the case much anymore? We're not going to have much political influence. We're not going to have much cultural influence. And because of that, it's going to make us feel so dependent on Jesus. In the past, you'd want to have time with God each day because you'd, you'd feel like, well, oh, it's, it's, it's important and God wants me to. Do you know going forward, you're going to need to spend time with Jesus each day. You're going to need to spend time with Jesus each day. Christianity always does better as a minority faith. And so as we look at facing opposition, we need to realize opposition is a test of faith. We don't have to be scared of the opposition. We just have to learn how do we face opposition. And I think our example, his name was Jesus. He faced opposition. And the way he dealt with opposition, I think, is instructive for the rest of us. So now we'll dive into John 6. Sorry for that very lengthy introduction. Here we go. John 6, verse 1. After this, Jesus crossed over to the far side of the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias. A huge crowd kept following him wherever he went. Now, you know this about Jesus, that he drew big crowds. Why did he draw the big crowds? John, his close friend, gives us an insight here. Because they saw his miraculous signs as they healed the sick. In other words, John is telling you, the reason Jesus drew such big crowds is because he was the P.T. Barnum of his day. He was the greatest showman. And no one wanted to miss the greatest show on earth. He's just being raw and honest with us. The big crowds were there because Jesus put on a big show. And no one wanted to miss his next miracle. I mean, honestly, I would have been there too. I would have been really intrigued by these big shows. Okay, verse 3. Then Jesus climbed a hill and sat down with his disciples around him. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. Jesus soon saw a huge crowd of people coming to look for him. Turning to Philip, he asked, where can we buy bread to feed all these people? <laughs> they did not have a nearby dollar general yet. He was testing Philip, for he already knew what, was, what he was going to do. Again, Jesus puts his followers to the task, knowing that there's opposition coming. Philip replied, even if we worked for months, we wouldn't have enough money to feed them. So literally, to feed a crowd this size, we're going to see the crowd size in a moment. To feed a crowd this size, it would take tens of thousands of dollars in today's money. Tens of thousands, plus tax and gratuity. So how are you going to feed a crowd this size when you don't have tens of thousands of dollars? Then Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. There's a young boy here with five barley loaves and two fish. <laughs> but what good is that with this huge crowd? Tell everyone to sit down, Jesus said. So they all sat down on the grassy slopes. The men alone numbered about 5,000. So historians tell us that 
you can expect at least one woman and child to every man. So the crowd was about 15,000 in size, at least 15,000. Then Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks to God, and distributed them to the people. I think the arena down in, in Binghamton, the Broome County Arena, holds about 5,000 people. So that's three times the size of the arena. I mean, this is a monstrous crowd. And Jesus has a small lunch from a little boy. And he, he blessed the lunch, the, the loaves and the fish. And you can imagine as he's saying this prayer of blessing and prayer of thanks, I can imagine all the people like, what's he doing? Is he blessing his own lunch and then going to eat in front of us? What's going on here? And he started distributing them. And they did this with the loaves, they did this with the fish, and they all ate as much as they wanted. Now pause for just a moment. Culturally speaking, this was a huge statement. Because they lived in a period of great hunger. Taxation was through the roof, people couldn't survive to live, so many people didn't have money for the basics like groceries. So some of these people had probably never had a full belly, ever in their life. They had never known what it was like to be full, except for this day. And on this day, they actually all were full, maybe for the first time in their lives. And Jesus said, after everyone was full, he told his disciples, now gather the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. Brings a smile to every parent's face, doesn't it? Isn't that what we do as parents? Don't you dare waste any food. There's little kids who don't have any today, right? So they gather the leftovers, nothing's wasted, and they picked up the pieces, and they filled 12 baskets with scraps left by the people who had eaten from the five barley loaves. That's insane. I mean, they literally had more food left over than they started with. When the people saw him do this miraculous sign, they exclaimed, Surely he's the prophet we've been expecting. They're so excited by this. When Jesus saw that they were ready to force him to be their king, he slipped away into the hills by himself. Now, this is just fascinating. I, I was just reading this morning about Pope um, Benedict, who passed away. And he did, never wanted to be Pope. He felt like when they made him Pope, it, like a guillotine came down around his neck. He made it eight years, and he said, I'm out. Eight years as Pope. I mean, to lead uh, a faith community with a billion point two people was an enormous hardship. Jesus knows there's going to be a tremendous hardship and a lot on his shoulders to lead a new movement of faith. He knows it. But he's not here to set up a new kingdom like a political kingdom. He's not here to do what they all wanted him to do, which was political power and political influence. And so when the day they're ready to coronate him as king is the day he slips away. He says, no, 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 you're not putting that on me. That's not why I'm here. And so that creates some tension and confusion. People don't know why this Messiah wouldn't want the crown because that's what Messiah, they thought, would want. So what happens next is fascinating. That's the end of miracle one. Jesus slips away from them because all was good. That evening, verse 16, Jesus' disciples went down to the shore to wait for him. But as darkness fell and Jesus still hadn't come back, they got into the boat and headed across the lake toward Capernaum. Soon a gale swept down upon them, and the sea grew very rough. They had rowed three or four miles when suddenly they saw Jesus walking on the water toward the boat. You've probably heard of this walking on the water miracle. They were not excited. They were terrified. But he called out to them, don't be afraid. I'm here. 
Then they were eager to let him in the boat. And there's another little note that John adds. It says, immediately they arrived at their destination. There's actually a double miracle here. Not only did Jesus walk on the water, but the minute he steps on the boat, somehow the boat is at shore. Kind of a, I don't know if it just went like warp speed all of a sudden. They're like, we're there. That would have been cool. Or I don't know if all of a sudden the shore was there. I'm not sure how Jesus pulled it off, but he pulls off this double miracle. I would love Jesus to be the motor in my boat, just saying. So they're there the other side. Jesus is, is superhero status. He's legendary status. These guys had just seen Jesus feed a crowd of 15,000 people with a lunch. They had just seen Jesus walk across water, and they had just seen him get their boat to the shore like that in a storm. So Jesus is legendary status. He's superhero status. Okay. The next day, verse 22, the crowd that had stayed on the far shore saw that the disciples had taken the only boat, and they realized Jesus had not gone with them. Several boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the Lord had blessed the bread and the people had eaten. So when the crowd saw that neither Jesus nor the disciples were there, they got into the boats and went across to Capernaum to look for him. So this is a huge flotilla. The crowds are all going to find the greatest showman. They're ready for some more. They found him on the other side of the lake and asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Now it's funny, Jesus could have said, well, I walked across the water uh, a few hours ago. He didn't. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. You want to be with me because I fed you not because you understood the miraculous signs. You don't love me. You love what I did for you. You love that your bellies were full. You just want more food, don't you? You want another meal. You want me to do another show. But don't be so concerned, Jesus says, about perishable things like food. Spend your energy seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man can give you. For God the Father has given me the seal of his approval. He's like, you need to love me for who I am, not for what I can do for you. I have eternal life, but you've got to come to me to get it. And they replied, we want to perform God's works too. What should we do? Basically, okay, if you're not going to do another show for us, can we at least have the power to do those shows? That would be kind of fun. We'll happily do some of these miracles. Now, here's the part about Jesus' miracles that they didn't quite understand. Jesus wasn't doing these miracles for a show. In fact, he wasn't even doing them just to make someone's life better. He was doing them as a sign. Here's what John says later in his account of Jesus' life. The disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs. I wish they had recorded more. There's tons more of things that Jesus did that were miraculous. Not all of it got recorded. But these are written, the ones that were, so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And that by believing in him, you, read the pink with me, you will have life by the power of his name. So the reason the miracles were done and recorded was so that we would experience God's eternal life. God's forgiveness. Verse 29, Jesus told them, this is the only work God wants from you. Believe in the one he has sent. I love this. Jesus says, you want to do a great work? I got one for you. Believe. You don't have to do anything. Just believe. And what Jesus says here is so simple, but so hard to grasp. Because for them, faith and religion was always about a list of do's and don'ts. 
And Jesus is like, you want to do something great? Not a list of do's and don'ts. Believe. Believe. And they struggled to understand this and struggled to get it, and we still do today. This spring, we're going to do a series through the book of Galatians and talk about the power of the true gospel versus legalism. Jesus, in this one sentence, destroys everything that they thought faith was, which was a list of do's and don'ts. Jesus is like, you want to do something? Believe. Believe. Believe in the one he has sent. And they answered, verse 30, show us a miraculous sign if you want us to believe in you. What can you do? Okay, is anyone else expecting that? Jesus just did this miraculous thing, feeding a crowd of 15,000 with a lunch. He then walks across a violent storm on the water and gets the boat to the other side. Stories that they probably had heard by now from the disciples who certainly would have been talking about it. And they asked Jesus, you want us to believe in you? What can you do? Show us something amazing. He's like, did you watch season one, episode one through ten? You really need a second season. Show us what you can do, Jesus. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Moses, and, and so they, they, they say, um, they talk about manna, verse 31. Show us a miraculous sign if you want us to believe in you. What can you do? After all, our ancestors ate manna while they journeyed through the wilderness. The scripture says Moses gave them bread from heaven to eat. They're like, can you do some, like Moses? Moses did like bread out of heaven. He didn't just multiply a boy's lunch. He made it rain bread. Can you do that? And Jesus is like, I tell you the truth. Moses didn't give you bread from heaven. My father did. And now he offers you the true bread from heaven. The true bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus is like, I'm the manna. Sir, give us that bread every day. Jesus replied, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Now, this gets us excited because we know exactly what Jesus is talking about. They didn't have that same reaction because they didn't get this at all. Jesus is here talking about he being bread. What do you do with bread? You eat it. Jesus is like, eat me. They're like, come again? Now, if you think that's strange, you keep going, we get even more peculiar. This is fascinating. Verse, keep going. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But you haven't believed in me even though you have seen me. However, those the Father has given me will come to me and I'll never reject them. For I've come down from heaven to do the will of God who sent me, not to do my own will. And this is the will of God, that I should not lose even one of all those he has given me, but that I should raise them up at the last day. For it is my Father's will that all who see his Son and believe in him should have eternal life. I will raise them up at the last day. Then the people began to murmur in disagreement because he had said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They don't get that. They're so confused. They said, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph? We know his father and mother. How can he say I came down from heaven? We know all about his family and where he was born. But Jesus replied, stop complaining about what I said. For no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them to me. And at the last day, I will raise them up. As it's written in the scriptures, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. 
Not that anyone has ever seen the Father. Only I, who was sent from God, has seen him. I tell you the truth. Anyone who believes, he's going back to belief here. Anyone who believes has eternal life. And then he goes back to the weird teaching. Yes, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate man in the wilderness, but they all died. Anyone who eats the bread from heaven, however, will not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will live forever. And this bread which I will offer so the world may live, they're like, oh, he's going to explain it, is my flesh. He's a cannibal. Then the people began arguing with each other about what he meant. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? They're grossed out. Women are passing out. I mean, it's just gross. No one gets it. It's really strange. It's really obscure. It's really confusing. As I tried to put myself in, 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 the, in the shoes or the sandals of the crowd there that day, I think just to have some empathy with them, this would have been like, and I want to be respectful here, but it would have been a little like listening to Kanye West. Okay, so, some of you, Yee is his new name. This is a rapper, he's a, he's a shoe designer, he's quite famous in pop culture. And last year he kind of became a Christian, went public with his faith, preached around the country. And some of us really liked the stuff he was saying, but then he kept talking. And you're like, come again? What do you believe? And now he's just said some stuff in the last few months that it's like, I don't even sure he's a true Christian. Like, this guy is out of his jug. He is... I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I don't know what to do with him. So I'm saying this respectfully. This would have been the way they felt right here about Jesus. It's like they liked some of the inspiring stuff that he said, but then he kept talking. And the more he kept talking, they're like, come again? Your, your, your tricks were cool. We like those. Can you just go back to doing tricks? Your teaching is a little strange. And now it's just getting downright disturbing, the things you're saying, Jesus. So Jesus said again, I tell you the truth. And Jesus just doubles down on it. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood. These poor people are like, first you want us to be cannibals. Now you want us to be vampires. And Jesus says, unless you do these things, you cannot have eternal life within you. They're like, gross. We don't get this. But Jesus says, but anyone who eats my flesh... And drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise that person at the last day. For my flesh is true food. And my blood is true drink. I'm sure the crowd was just as silent as it is right now. What? Anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. He keeps doubling down, doubling down. I live because of the living father who sent me. In the same way, anyone who feeds on me will live because of me. I am the true bread that came down from heaven. Jesus keeps going over and over. Anyone who eats this bread will not die as your ancestors did, even though they ate the manna, but will live forever. He said these things while he was teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. And everyone's looking, scratching their head, like, can we rewind and edit out what you just said? Because you lost us. Now look what happens next. Verse 60. Many of his disciples, these are the guys who just saw the boat miracle. The water miracle. They said to Jesus, this is very hard to understand. Right? I can imagine them pulling Jesus aside. Hey, Jesus, can we get you up back on a teleprompter or something? 
Like, we, we're, we're literally not tracking with you. You seem like you're saying stuff that is just impossible to understand. And then they make this statement. How can anyone accept it? They're, they're like, how can, not, not how can the crowds accept it? How can anyone accept what you've just said? This is so bizarre. It's so far out there. How can anyone accept it? Jesus was aware that his disciples were complaining. So he said to them, does this offend you? I can imagine, like, they're thinking, well, I don't know if offend's the right word, but kind of. Yeah, like we were getting excited. They were about to offer you a crown yesterday. You did three superhero miracles yesterday that were phenomenal, and today you dropped this teaching that makes, makes no sense, is, is offensive. So, yeah, yeah, I guess we're offended. I, I don't know, we're confused. What are you getting at, Jesus? Does this offend you? And Jesus presses in on them. Then what will you think if you see the Son of Man ascend to heaven again? He's like, guys, if you don't get this stuff that I've just told you, this is 101 stuff. I want to move you on to 201, 301, 401. You're never going to graduate if you can't get 101 stuff. The Spirit alone gives eternal life. Human effort accomplishes nothing. And the very words I've spoken to you are spirit and life. But some of you do not believe me. Jesus is looking at him like, I get it. I get it. There's some of you guys, you don't believe me. You're my disciples. And even you don't believe me. For Jesus knew from the beginning which ones didn't believe, and he even knew who would betray him. Then he said, that is why I said that people can't come to me unless the Father gives them to me. So Jesus speaks this hard teaching, and he does it with just this calmness, and he does it with confidence. He knows many people won't accept him, and many people won't believe him. And here's what I think is one of the main climaxes of this chapter. Look at verse 66. At this point, many of his disciples, what'd they do? They turned away and deserted him. Imagine being there in the crowd that day. And you saw him do the feeding the day before. You heard what the disciples were saying about him walking on the water and getting the boat to shore instantly. And so the disciples had just seen two more miracles than you had. And now you see this little huddle with Jesus, with his disciples. And now you see all of these disciples deserting him. So the crowd's like, okay, we're not off our rocker. If even those guys are leaving us, then we're out. We're out. This is just fascinating what's happening here. Now, I think some of us get frustrated when we can't convince people to believe in Jesus. Anyone else ever been there with someone you care about? You, you want so bad to convince them to believe in Jesus. If even Jesus didn't convince everyone to believe in him. Just a thought here, right? Am I more convincing than Jesus? Do I have a better personality than Jesus? Can I somehow win more people than Jesus? I mean, Jesus himself was rejected not just by the crowds, but by many of his own followers in this moment. And he doesn't back down. Look at verse 66 again. At this point, many of his disciples turned away and deserted, and then Jesus turned to the 12. This, gets, this makes me feel sad. He turned to the 12 and asked, are you also going to leave? Right Here's his 12 guys. The other disciples are gone. The 12 are there, and he's like, do you guys want to go too? Like, I'm giving you an out right here. Do you, do you want to go too? And Simon Peter answered. Simon was usually the first to speak. He usually didn't put much thought into what he was going to say. But here he has it. 
And he speaks for the, the whole group, all 12 left. And he replies this, Lord, to whom would we go? Jesus like, do you, do you guys want to go too? And he's like, Peter's like, where would we go? There's a lot of great leaders and teachers out there. There's no one like you, Jesus. There's no one like you. You have the words that give eternal life. And then he makes this statement, two words. We believe. Say that with me. We believe. He says it for all the other guys. We believe. That's why we're not going anywhere. We believe. We don't get it. That teaching was a little strange. We still don't have that figured out. Like, can you explain it to us later? But I want you to know, Jesus, that me and the other 11 here, we believe. We're not walking away. And we know you are the Holy One of God. Then Jesus said, I chose the 12 of you, but one is a devil. I'm sure that made him feel better. Great! He was speaking of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, one of the 12 who would later betray him. Okay, let's just break this down as we wrap up here. John chapter 6, some crazy awesome miracles of Jesus. And it ends in a way that's very unexpected. Even many of Jesus' own disciples desert him after some of his most famous legendary miracles. I think we get so focused on the miracles, we miss what happened right after. Here's an interesting note. Jesus was, he was surging in popularity in John 6. He was surging in popularity. Word was out, crowds were swelling. And it's when the crowds got the biggest that Jesus' teaching got the hardest. There's a book, if you're a reader and, and want a good book to read this year, I'm going to recommend one for you. It's called, uh, if you can click for me, Sam, it's called Not a Fan by Kyle Eidelman. In this book, Kyle breaks down exactly this strange thing that we just saw, the paradox that when Jesus' crowds got the biggest, he taught the hardest stuff, the stuff he knew the crowds wouldn't understand, the stuff he knew would essentially drive the crowds away. If Jesus, when he was on his game, doing his best and greatest things, was facing such tremendous opposition, what makes us think that our lives would be somehow different or better? Like, it, let's just say, my goal this year is to be the best Christian I can be. And let's say this year, you are literally the best Christian you can be. Let's say, starting right now, you don't even sin until the end of this year. <laughs> yeah, you're like, yeah, give me for like 10 minutes and I'll break that. Me too. But just imagine, imagine that you literally go all 2023 without sinning once. You're patient, you're kind, you're forgiving. You do all the right things. What if your year, this year, was still really, really hard? Would that seem fair? What if your marriage didn't get better? What if your family and your home didn't get less tense? What if work didn't get more fun? What if you did everything right and your life got more difficult? Would you sign back up next year? I mean, seriously, right? We could do all the right things. Jesus was doing all the right things, and his life progressively got harder. You read his life, and it was like he was going into a vice. It got harder and harder. The more he did all the right things, it got harder and harder and harder. And he gave us a divine guarantee for what we can expect in this world and in this year. 
here's his divine guarantee. Yes, and everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, read this with me, will suffer persecution. This is a divine guarantee. If you want to claim the promises of God, here's one to claim. It's going to happen. If you want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, if you want to follow Jesus, if you want to be part of his inner circle that truly follows him and doesn't walk away when it gets tough, you just need to know you will suffer persecution. You will face opposition. So here's the deal. Opposition isn't something to fear. It's something to anticipate. Can I go one step further this morning? Okay, thanks, because I will. Opposition isn't something to fear. It's something to anticipate. It's even something to, whoops, it's even something to enjoy. <laughs> I heard it can say, huh? I agree, huh? You're like, okay, you're taking it a step too far. Jesus took it a step too far. In Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, look at what he said. Next slide, please. Check this out. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. God blesses you. That doesn't feel like it, but you literally, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're going to have people mock you, persecute you, lie about you, say bad things about you. Has anyone experienced any of this yet? If not, you will. But here's what God says about it, what Jesus said. Be happy about it. Be very glad. For a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. This is crazy. What if I have in my mindset that 2023, I'm going to try to follow Jesus well, but life could be really difficult. Now, I think back to 2022. There were things that made 2022 really hard. There, there was some heartbreak and some sadness and some, and, and some rough, bad stuff that I and some of you went through, experienced it, and, and I don't think any of us saw it coming. But what if, what if the same is going to happen in 2023? There's going to be unexpected stuff that's bad, betrayal and sadness and heartbreak and evil. What if my response to that is to be happy about it, to be very glad. Opposition's coming. And I'm not just going to get in this defensive posture. I'm ready. Let them take me. Like, let it come. That's okay. Jesus faced opposition. During his greatest season of miracles, he faced opposition. He faced desertion among his inner circle. During that, be happy about it. Be very glad. Because here's the deal. This isn't meant to make anyone afraid today. It's not meant to make anyone extra cautious and fearful and nervous. Opposition is coming, especially as our culture swings and shifts, and we live in that shift, the post-Christian America. But it's our attitude towards it that we can choose in advance. We can't choose what's going to happen to us this year any more than we could the last few years. But we can choose how we face it. And what if we just say, okay, Jesus, I'm going to be happy and glad in advance when opposition comes, when tough stuff comes. And I'm going to learn how to face opposition well. How did Jesus' inner 12 face it? When Peter spoke for the group, he said, 
we believe. We believe. So what if I just resolve? I know resolutions are a thing of the past. We don't do resolutions anymore. But what if we just make one? I resolve this year to believe no matter what. I mean, what if we just made that the way we started the new year? No matter what comes this year. Maybe it'll exceed my expectations. Maybe it'll not even come close. But I resolve no matter what comes this year. The joy and the heartbreak. The disappointment and the failure. The successes and the greatness. No matter what comes this year, I resolve to believe no matter what. Because where else would I go? Who else would I trust in? Who else would I believe in? Jesus has everything I need. Jesus has everything I want. Jesus is my hope. Jesus is my future. Where else would I go? I mean, what if we just made this a line in the sand, January 1st, line in the sand moment. No matter what comes this year, I make a choice. I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to believe. No matter how tough life gets, no matter how much influence I lose in the culture, in the country, no matter the stuff I see that makes me react with disgust and anger, I choose, I'm going to be happy and glad. I'm not going to be toxic. The last thing our country needs is more toxic people. I think as Christians, we're falling in often to the trap of being toxic, bitter, angry, because we're losing influence. Because Jesus says, guys, guys, look at my life. My life was a series of obstacles. Be very glad about it. Be happy about it. Your reward in heaven is great. All the prophets face the same thing you're facing. Christianity's always been better as a minority faith. Get used to it. Depend on Jesus more. Believe in Jesus more. Trust Jesus more. Because Peter's question is true. Where else would we go? Who else would we believe in? Jesus is the bread to feed us for eternity. Amen? Would you bow in prayer this morning? We're going to get the privilege today at our, all of our campuses to have a time of the Lord's Supper, a time of communion. And it's just kind of a response. It's a response to what we've just heard. When Jesus talked about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, no, he wasn't talking about being a cannibal or a vampire. He was talking about the power of his salvation that only he could offer. You got to come to Jesus if you want to get to God. You got to come to Jesus if you want to go to heaven. You got to come to Jesus if you want hope, if you want forgiveness, if you want salvation. There's nowhere else you can find these things other than Jesus. I'm telling you, our culture and our world, they're searching for those things in all the wrong places. They're looking for love and hope and healing and forgiveness in all the wrong places. My friend, if you know Jesus, you have what the world wants and needs, and maybe they don't even know it. And so today, as we, as we take the bread and take the cup, we're, we're not drinking and eating the actual blood and body of Jesus. We're symbolically saying, I have nowhere else to go than Jesus. In this new year, I, I come to the table. I come to the Lord's Supper knowing I have nowhere else to go but Jesus. And I choose to believe no matter what. 
maybe you're here today and listening or, or watching at another campus and you say, no, I, I don't believe or I haven't believed yet. I want to invite you. I, I get it that maybe it's hard to believe. Even in Jesus' audience that day, it was really hard. Most didn't believe. I get it. It's hard to believe these things. I just want you to know, though, that Jesus is the only hope of heaven. He's the only hope of salvation and forgiveness. He's the only one who can deal with the sin problem in your soul. He's the only one who can deal with the mess of your past. He's the only one who can bridge the gap between you and God. There's no one else, there's nowhere else you can ever turn. And if you turn from Jesus, you just need to know you'll never get the salvation and freedom and forgiveness that your soul, it longs for. And I invite you today to believe, to join the family of faith that says we don't get all this stuff, but where else would we go? Father, thank you. Thank you that this year, even this text and this series is helping to prepare my heart for what's to come. The opposition, the difficulty, the challenge that we'll face. God, I pray that I would have a sense of joy and peace this year, no matter what. I resolve with all my heart, Lord, no matter what comes this year, that I believe. I believe in your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Church family, here's how you can take the Lord's Supper with us today. This is an open invitation, but one and all. It's a chance to kind of see and taste and experience the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's nothing about communion that saves you. There's nothing about communion that changes you. It's a symbolic thing. This was an actual meal in the first century. When Jesus did it with his followers, when the early church did it, it was an actual meal. We'd love to do an actual meal with you. It's why we do small groups. You do an actual meal around a table, around the teaching of Jesus. And yet what we do here today is symbolic. It's not the full meal. It's a little piece of bread and a cup, and on top is another cup with the juice. And we're just going to invite you to participate. There's no pressure here, but you're invited to participate. And what you'll do is in a moment, you'll exit. We're going to have some music playing, and you can sing to it. But you can exit out of the right side of your row, come down to the table in front, take a cup. There's two cups together. Take that and go back on the left side of your row to your seat. And then just hold on to it. You can, you can pray. You can sing. You can spend some time with Jesus. And then once the song gets towards the end, Alyssa is going to lead us in taking it together. We'll, we'll, we'll do this together. Jesus said, as often as you do this together, you do this in remembrance of me. And so I hope that this is just a kind of fun, meaningful way to begin the new year. Taking the Lord's Supper, this hard teaching that made little sense 2,000 years ago, maybe makes a little more sense today that we can do this together in honor of Jesus, the one who gave himself for us. Because friends, where else would we go? He has eternal life. So if you would, beginning from the front and working your way to the back, exit out and come forward and go to the table. You can do so now.
praise the one who set me free. Hallelujah. Death has lost its grip on me. You have broken every chain. There's salvation in your name. Jesus Christ, my living what Peter said. We believe. And as we take the bread together, think that to yourself. Pray that to yourself. I believe. You can take the bread. this morning we remember what you did for us we remember what you suffered through not just in the crucifixion but in your teaching as you walked this earth we remember and we believe And no matter what comes this year, this lifetime, we believe. Happy New Year to all of you. I hope it is a great one. You are all dismissed.